Our Father, it uh, is somewhat ironic and a little bit difficult to get used to uh, walking in the stores even a couple of weeks ago and seeing Christmas trees and ornaments and advertisements. It's just the way uh, things are these days. Nobody wants to miss an opportunity or miss a buck, so they're starting earlier and earlier. But as we wrap up this fall, we are mindful that before we get to Christmas, we have something called Thanksgiving. And if any people on the face of the earth should be thankful, it's us. All that we have been given, all the freedom that we have enjoyed, all of the prosperity, even when things are tough in this nation, we're more prosperous than almost any other nation. You've been so good to us, and we want to say thank you. We want to be quick to honor you. It's, uh, it's easy in the climate that we are in economically to begin to have our perspectives skewered because we are uh, aware that things have turned around to the negative. Uh, we're, we're mindful of what we have lost over the last couple of years, perhaps. Uh, we have to be very careful. We have to guard our hearts because it's so easy to begin to murmur and complain just as Israel did in the wilderness. And we do not want to do that. As we get into the holiday season, which is really the holy day season, we want to begin by thanking you and praising you we pray that will be a significant time for all of us on that particular day. But we want to keep that attitude on a daily basis. Just one of thanksgiving. Just one of gratitude. And then we are grateful that we have a day where we remember the birth of our Lord and Savior, the virgin birth. And in the midst of all of the travel and all of the family activities and all the get-togethers and all the parties, may that be central. We are grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful for who he is. We are grateful that he holds the universe together and that he holds us together. And he is our hope. He is our savior. We fix our eyes on him and no one else. Now tonight, as we wrap up this study, and then we take some time off. I pray that you would perhaps, during the off time, bring principles back, one or two, that uh, we've covered. There's been a lot of stuff over the last 10 weeks. But just one or two, Lord, that would be uh, particularly applicable to where we are and to what we are dealing with. These things were written for our instruction, Paul said. There's a reason these historical stories are in your word. May we take courage. May we learn from the example of Boaz. We, we aspire to be his kind of man. I, I pray for favor upon each man in this room. I pray for encouragement to the guys who are discouraged tonight. That you would be um, particularly close to them. I pray that in a tangible way you'd reassure them of your presence and of your care and of your concern and let them know that uh, it's okay. 
things aren't going to fall apart because you're in control. That's something we all need to be reminded of in this day and age. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who upholds all things by the word of his power. Amen. Do I have any thoughts on Jason Garrett? I had some thoughts on Boaz prepared here. But, well, gee, I, I kind of liked what I saw. I mean, I think we all did. I was actually talking to a guy this afternoon. Um, I won't give you his name because he didn't. We were just talking. But he, he actually played when Garrett was a backup behind Aikman. And he's just... He's just so impressed with the guy and his character. I actually did a couple of Bible studies in his house when he was a backup. This is back in, what, early 90s? In Coppell. Yeah, anyway. So, it was a good start, huh? It was a good start. Okay. You kind of threw me off there, Jim. I had this dynamite opening, and now I'm completely lost and... Let's talk about the Mavs for a minute. Are the Mavs playing? Are they still in Dallas? Okay. What do you think about Cliff Lee? You think he's going to the Yankees? What do you think? Let's just have a moment of prayer right now before we go any further. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I, I'm, here's what I'm going to do tonight. I, I'm going to, and I, I meant to talk with Jason before I got going. Uh, I'm going to, and I even hesitate to say this because it's so hard for me to do something like this. I'm going to try and summarize this last section and finish early. That's very hard for me to say. Uh, it's even hard for me to physically get that out of my mouth. Now, I'm, I'm a little concerned about saying that because I'm not sure I can pull it off. But if I do, my thought was, my thought was, that uh, I try to sum it up, and then maybe, because we're wrapping up the study, uh, is take some questions. So if you have some questions on our study, we'll give you a shot. I'm not sure I've got any answers, but, you know, a little Q&A. We might do it, we might not. We'll just see. But I'm, uh, it's something I'm shooting for, okay? So that's, that's a heads up. All right, let's go to Boaz. Book of Boaz, which, once again, I will emphasize does not exist, but the book of Ruth does, and that's where you meet Boaz. So we are now in Ruth chapter 4 as we finish off, as, as we finish off this book. And the way the book finishes is with something that, at first glance, is not terribly exciting. I don't know if you've ever determined uh, at the beginning of the year, you say, you know, this year I'm going to read the Bible through. I'm going to read the Bible straight through. And it's a good thing to read the Bible through, and there are different plans, uh, there are different ways of going about that. Um, I, I use Robert Murray McChain's, uh, you, you know, calendar of reading through the Bible, and I just keep this in my Bible, and uh, you read four different sections, 
In, in, in January 1, you go Genesis 1, you go Ezra 1, you go Matthew 1, you go Acts 1. So you're always reading, you know, in four different sections every day. Uh, but I've also done it just reading it from Genesis to Revelation. And that's a good thing to do if you've never done it. And you get off in Genesis, it's good. Genesis, you're getting up early in the morning, get your coffee, get your Bible. You're reading Genesis, you're doing Exodus, you hit Leviticus, and you start doing a slow death. I don't know if you've ever tried to read Leviticus at 5.30 in the morning, but it's not always terribly exciting. Uh, that's the way it is sometimes when we hit the genealogies, or you say to yourself, well, I'm just going to read the New Testament. So you get your coffee, you get up early, and you go to Matthew 1, and it's a bunch of bagats. Genealogies, at first glance, are not real exciting. I would submit to you that genealogies are terribly exciting. If someone tomorrow morning delivered to you by 10.30 a Federal Express letter that contained your personal family genealogy for the last 6,000 years, you'd be mesmerized. You wouldn't get any work done for the next two weeks. All you would be doing is going back through your family history. Some of you guys with, uh, you know, the Internet thing, it's amazing what you can learn about your families now. Ancestry.com and all these different places. And then, they, you know, they're, they're going through records and they're putting them online and da-da-da. And it's just phenomenal stuff. See, genealogies are fascinating. And, and the story of Boaz and the story of Ruth ends with this summary um, genealogy. Now, let me tell you what this genealogy is here in, in Ruth chapter 4. What, what I would call this, and it's a very short genealogy, uh, it, it is a, it's what I would call a, a highlight genealogy. Because this genealogy is covering a period of 800 years. But there are not enough names in here to cover everybody that was in the family line for 800 years. What this is, what this genealogy is, it's, it's, it's compact. It's a condensed genealogy. Um, you can't watch all the football games over the weekend. So what you might do is turn on SportsCenter Saturday night, get the college games, or Sunday night, watch the pro games. You can't watch all those games, but you watch SportsCenter, you're going to get the highlights. That's what's in this genealogy in Ruth 4. It's the highlights of 800 years. Uh, this genealogy is a, I, I would call it a generational sandwich. And we're going to find Boaz right in the middle of the sandwich. Okay? Um, genealogies are not boring. Uh, before I read this, let me, let me give you three facts about um, genealogies. There are, um, when we read genealogies in the Bible, or even when you read your own genealogy, Maybe your uncle or your cousin or somebody, you know, has done all this work and they shoot it to you. you just, you're just kind of overwhelmed. You're amazed. There, there are three things that genealogies do for us. Number one, they tell us that God was working for you before you were born. Let me say that again. Genealogies tell us that God was working for you before you were born. Uh, genealogies are... Are, are, are like a, they're like chains. I think it's, uh, 
I read one time about uh, the USS uh, Eisenhower and the anchor, the size of the anchor, how many, how many tons that anchor was, and, and the size of that anchor was attached to a chain. And I'm trying to remember this. I, I didn't mean on, to say this, and it was years ago that I read about this. But, um, you know, a chain is just comprised of individual links. That anchor was huge. I mean, to, to hold down a ship like that, each link in the chain was, I, don't, I can't remember how many tons, just, just massive in scope. And you put one link with another link with another link with another link. Well, that's a genealogy. We're all linked together. There are family links. There's a, your genealogy is a family chain. And when you look at a genealogy, what you're reminded of is, number one, is that God was working for you before you were ever born. Secondly, we are reminded in a genealogy that God will work for you and in you while you are alive. Thirdly, in a genealogy, we find out that God will work for you after you are gone. So he works, genealogies remind me that God worked for me before I was born. He works for me and in me while I'm alive. And then God works for me after I'm gone. We didn't always exist. Did we? And why do you exist? Why are you here? Why are you alive? Why do you exist? Central question of life. Why do you exist? Because it was the plan of God that you exist. Psalm 139, David says, and in thy book, they were all written. Oh, no, no. Before that, he says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance when you were sperm and egg. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Okay. Um, let's read the genealogy. And you're going to see these three things in the genealogy, and remember, Boaz is going to be right in the middle of it. So we're in Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. Now these names don't mean a lot to us. They meant a lot to Boaz. Um, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz. There he is. So now we see Boaz. But see, God was at work in Boaz's life before Boaz was ever born because he was working in the life of his, his ancestors. He was working in the life of his father and grandfather, great-grandfather. He was working in the lives of all of them, and they're not all listed here because this is a highlight ESPN sports center genealogy. So who were these guys? Uh, John Reed, in his commentary, says, Perez's family line provided documentation for God's providential care. The seemingly ordinary events in the book of Ruth, specifically the travels, the marriages, the deaths, the harvesting, the eating, the sleeping, the purchasing of land, all reveal the guiding activities of the sovereign God. Perez was the son of Judah through Tamar. Now that's important. Judah was one of the brothers of Joseph. In fact, Judah was the brother that when Joseph came to see how his brothers were doing and they were going to kill him, but then they didn't kill him. 
uh, they can't kill you till your work's done. You know that. They may want to kill you, but they can't kill you till your work's done. They were going to kill him, but then Reuben said, no, let's put him in a pit. And while they were eating dinner, their uh, humus burgers and their goat's milk, whatever they were eating, they see a Midianite slave caravan go by, and it was Judah who said, hey, instead of killing the kid, let's sell him to the Midianites. That was Judah. Okay? Now, if you know your genealogies, Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. And as I'm reading my Bible calendar this week, I'm in the book of Hebrews, and it talks about the fact that Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. That's a big deal, because only the tribe of Levi, only the guys out of the tribe of Levi could be the priests. But Jesus wasn't from that tribe. But Jesus wasn't operating in an earthly tabernacle. He was operating in one that wasn't constructed with hands. He's, he's operating in a heavenly tabernacle. Therefore, he's of another tribe, and it's okay because he's the high priest, the Lion of Judah. He's of the tribe of Judah. You see? Kind of wild stuff here. So Judah, this all starts with Judah. And who's Judah? One of Joseph's brothers. Uh, has this thing going on with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. It's kind of a screwed-up deal. But there's a lot of dysfunctional families in the Old Testament. Every family's dysfunctional. You know what the word dysfunctional means? It means screwed up in the Greek. That's what it means. Dysfun every, everybody's screwed up. You're screwed up. I'm screwed up. So that means all our family. Everybody's messed up. That's why we need a Savior. Dysfunctional families are families who don't deal with reality. Functional families deal with rea reality. Everybody has their stuff. Everybody has their issues. The dysfunctional families act like there are no issues. The functional families say, wait a minute, we've got issues. Let's work them through. And it's hard to do at first. But it pays a lot of dividends. So this starts with a dysfunctional family with a dysfunctional guy. I don't have time to read the story to you of... Uh, uh, Judah and Tamar, but out of that relationship comes uh, Perez, okay? And then you've got um, Hezron. Hezron was among the family of Jacob that went into Egypt. That's Genesis 46. Then you have Ram. Ram is uh, 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 St. Louis Ram, <laughs> just for you guys who weren't paying attention. Ram used to be Los Angeles Ram, and there's talk that they may go back to L.A., but that's another issue that I'm sure Jim will bring up at the end of the session here tonight, right? Okay, I'm giving you a hard time, Jim. So Ram is mentioned in 1 Chronicles 2.9. Aminadab was the father-in-law of Aaron, Moses' brother. This is all interesting stuff if you're at the family reunion. Then there's Nashon. Nashon was head of the house of Judah. That's Numbers 1, verse 7. Then you have Salmon, who was the father of Boaz, now, uh, Salmon married a gal by the name of Rahab. You guys remember Rahab? She was a prostitute in Jericho when Joshua showed up. And she, put the, uh, she talked to the spies, protected the spies. You know the story. Put the scarlet thread in her window and looked to Joshua to be her kinsman redeemer and to save her because she believed in the one true God, Yahweh. She marries Salmon. Now, there's a note here that John Reed puts in. Um, 
He said, however, and so Salmon, it says here, was the father of Boaz. He says, however, Rahab lived in Joshua's time about 250 to 300 years earlier, probably than Rahab was Boaz's mother in the sense that she was his ancestress, as it refers to our father Abraham in Romans 4. So then that brings us up to... uh, that, that brings us up to um, Boaz. See, all I'm saying, the reason I'm going into all this is simply this. God was working for Boaz before Boaz was ever born. Uh, God sovereignly... Um, it, it's really wild when you start thinking about how you came into existence and why you were born in the family that you were born. I always think it's fascinating. Um, If your father, here's a question, it's not a trick question. If your father had not have married your mother, would you exist? The answer is no. What if your dad had married that cheerleader from that other high school he had a crush on? And you don't know anything about this. But don't you think before your dad met your mom, there was another gal he was probably interested in? Well, probably, okay. Before you met your wife, there was probably some gal you took out. Maybe you thought she was, gosh, maybe you asked her to marry you. And it didn't work, she turned you down and you know. What if your dad had married some other gal? Would you exist? No. Because it takes a certain sperm, your, your father had that, but it takes a certain egg, and that cheerleader didn't have the egg. Only your mother had the egg. See, providentially, God had to work in your life before you were ever born in order for you to get a life. We hear the phrase today, get a life. Well, how'd you get a life? God providentially was working for you before you were ever born. And then it goes back up through the generations. So what if grandpa had married that girl from the other farm instead of grandma? Would you exist? The answer is no. But see, he didn't marry the girl from the other farm. He married grandma. Then they had your dad. Your dad met your mom, and there you are. What about great-grandpa? Have you guys ever thought about what it took for you to exist? Have you ever thought about what it what it has taken for you to be alive and exist. See, when you stand back and you think about that, you just kind of go, that's unbelievable. See, God was working for you before you were ever born. That's why you're alive, and that's why you're here, and that's why you exist. And what does Psalm 139 say? In that same context, David says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The gifts I have, the abilities, the skills, the strengths, the weaknesses, God's built them all in. Every guy in here has strengths, and every guy in here has weaknesses. Every guy in here can do some things well, and other things you can't do for, you know, to save your life. Why? God made you that way. God designed you that way. Just how it works. It's part of his providential plan. And the work that God has for you to do, Ephesians 2.10, I gotta watch that clock if we're gonna have questions. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in. The works that God has for you to do, God gave you the gifts in the womb when he was forming you 
and shaping you and fashioning you. He gave you the gifts that you would need in order to do the work that he's called you to do. And through all the experiences of your life and the chapters of your life and the ups and downs and the victories and the defeats and all that stuff, he's preparing you for the work that he has for you to do. That's pretty wild, isn't it? That's great stuff. So you see these different names. God was providentially working through these ancestors. Um, uh, the second fact is this. God will work for you and in you while you are alive. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way. You guys ever sketch out some plans? You ever sketch out some idea, you know, you getting out of high school, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and you know, you kind of sketch out, you know, you can't sketch out your whole life, but you try to look ahead, and you're trying to think through stuff and all that, and that's, and that's a good thing. If you, I mean, you, know, you don't want to be a sluggard, you want to, you want to do some planning. But the Bible says in 16.9 of Proverbs, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. God is going to take you where he wants you to go. He's got a plan for your life. And oftentimes it stuns us and shocks us and surprises us where we find ourselves in life because it wasn't on our radar screen, but it's on his radar screen. And I mentioned to you before uh, John Newton. And when you would uh, see John Newton, the pastor at Olney, when you would see him on the street and you would say, Pastor Newton, how are you today? His reply was always the same. I am just as God would have me. He never said, I'm fine. He never said, I'm okay. How are you today, Pastor? He would always say, I am just as God would have me. John Newton was shocked by his life, and so are you. You think, is that funny? It is funny. It's humorous. It's humorous, it is. It's amusing, isn't it? Because we've got to laugh at ourselves. We just laugh at ourselves. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Here's another one. Go over to uh, Jeremiah 10, 23. Just real quick. It'll, it, it is funny, Ron. It's amusing. We've got we to kind of laugh at ourselves a little bit. And, and we get so anxious at times because we have decisions where, man, this has got to work out. And, oh, my gosh, what if this doesn't come together? And what if they don't hire me? And, what if they, and the whole time, God's running the whole show. And it really takes the pressure off to know that he's going to get you where he wants you to be. And if he wants you hired, they're going to hire you, even if they don't want you. They are going to hire you. The other guys will drop out. He'll do whatever he has to do to get you where he wants you to be, even if it means going against their wishes. Okay. Jeremiah 10, 23. I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. What happened? Sorry, I'm a professional. I do this for a living. Um, there's a guy named Tim Challies. Uh, he is the most... Uh, widely read Christian blogger in the world. You can go to challies.com, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S. Some of you old guys, there's a thing called the internet. <laughs> and a blogger is someone who writes and posts, I'm kind of kidding around, but 
you know, 15 years ago, none of us had ever heard of this stuff. But this guy is really big in the Christian world, and uh, Jeff Swan told me about him about two years ago, and I check his site almost every day, because the guy's a great researcher, and he's a great writer, and he's got fresh stuff, and he posts it, and he'll give you links to different things. It's interesting stuff, fascinating stuff. Uh, I was looking at his site uh, last Thursday, and uh, it said, my mother's testimony. And I thought, what? Because that's not, not normally what he has on there. You know, they just found out this about the Dead Sea Scrolls, or, you know, Joel Osteen said this on The View, or, uh, <laughs> I'm dead serious. That was on there, yes, that was on there today, about yesterday. Uh, but I won't get into that because I don't have time, I'm watching the clock. But he's got stuff, and it's just, there's usually something good, he's got a nugget on there. So I check him. But I look at this thing, goes, my mother's testimony. And I thought, why would he, well, this doesn't fit, why would he do that? And then I started reading it. Um, that's not it. And that's not it. Uh, he, let me just read you a couple uh, paragraphs. Because I started reading this thing, and it was fascinating. Talking about, and here's this guy, and, the, and you know, young people read this guy like crazy. Most influential Christian blogger in the world. And here's his mom's testimony. So his mom wrote this out, and he just put it on, he just posted it. She says, I'm sitting on the Voyager bus on the way to Lenoxville, Quebec. They're Canadian. I've decided to take a few days off and figure out whether or not I can find a reason to continue to live. She's in college. If not, I will kill myself. This is not a hasty or emotional decision. I simply hate life, the tiresome process of getting through another long and meaningless day. I feel like Sisyphus of the Greek legends condemned every day to attempting to roll a huge rock uphill, only to have it roll back again and again and again. I can bear this no longer. And then she's, and really, this, this is what she's doing. She, she is so miserable with life as, as a 20-year-old, she is really pondering over the next few days, will I kill myself or will I not? Obviously not a Christian. Uh, she goes, uh, takes the bus to College Street to the university. She says, I really even, don't even know why I came here. I just thought I could get away from the house and I'd be able to think clearly here. I arrive on campus and I go to the hub of the building in front of the theater. I'm sitting there waiting and I'm not even sure waiting for what. And then along comes somebody I know, it's John Challies. And then she says, this is a guy she used to go to high school with and he was sort of a bohemian, artsy guy, kind of, you know, a rebel. And she remembered him, and, you know, she was more conservative, but he was kind of a radical. And she saw him just by chance. And he walks up to her and says, how are you? And hadn't seen her in several years. And um, they'd been out on one date. Uh, he comes right over to me, obviously wants to talk, and talk he does about things I had never heard of before, at least as part of real life. He starts talking about God and the Bible and about sin and about Jesus Christ. And I think to myself, what in the world is this? I listen, but I'm not happy. I wish he would stop talking and go away because I'm trying to figure out whether or not I should kill myself. She's in such despair, she can't figure this guy out. And why is he talking about this stuff? And then, and then he says to her, he says, Barbara, I think God has great things in store for you. And she, she thinks to, her, to herself, what? 
And he extracts a promise from me to go and have dinner with him two nights later. I don't want to, but I'm polite and say that I will. And then he leaves, and she's not sure what to do, and she can't get any peace and quiet, so she actually goes off campus, and there's out in this open field, and it's snow, and she sits down in the middle of the field, and she is in such despair, and is in such pain emotionally, what did I do with this, that she literally cries out in the snow, she, she looks up to the sky, and she says, help, help, help. She knew of nothing else to do. She was absolutely desperate. The next day I hear there's going to be a Roman Polanski film shown in the theater tomorrow. Great, I love his stuff. I love dark themes. I'm looking forward to that. Then I remember, I can't go because I told John Challies I'd have dinner with him. So she's thinking maybe I'll see him in the commons and within a short period of time he walks in and she walks over to his table to say to him, uh, I can't go, I'm going to break the date. And as she walks over to the table, something sweeps over me to tell him she can't go. It, it is the determination suddenly in my heart to do what's right. I can't cancel our dinner plans. I will keep my word. This takes me by surprise. It's unlike me. She winds up going to dinner with the guy. And then there's another couple there, and they start talking. And they ask her how she's doing, and she starts telling them, well, I'm taking a few days to consider whether or not I'll commit suicide. And then one of the guys begins to share with her the gospel. And she notices that John's mother is in the kitchen, but she is set down, and it looks like she's praying. And the guy explains the gospel to her and talks about sin, and talks about Jesus and what Jesus has done. And then he asks her, after he explains the gospel, if she would like to ask Jesus to be her Savior and to come into her life. And she found herself saying yes. And then she says this. She said, that very moment, there is an almost tangible feeling of something like a paintbrush whitewashing me inside. I can feel my sin being covered. And there is something filling the room. What is it? I, I don't know. I can't identify it. Oh, oh, I do know. It, it's joy. Joy. And suddenly this young girl who's trying to figure out if she should kill herself or not is suddenly overcome with joy because her sins have been forgiven by the living Christ. Just a chance meeting at a university, sort of like Ruth and Boaz in the barley field. Oh, and then she says this, so my new life begins. I get married to John a few months later. We have five children who grow to love the Lord, one of them being Tim Challies. Then we have 11 grandchildren. God did indeed take the one who was depressed and desolate and place her in a family. That's the story of Ruth and Boaz. Is it not? Isn't that wild? So I read this guy, and this guy's a great researcher. Isn't that great? And he says, here's my mother's testimony. Though. Give me something good, man. I want you give me your mother's testimony. And I'm reading this thing, and I'm just falling all over myself. This is unbelievable. This is Ruth and Boaz. Yes, it is, because he's the same God. He's taken people that are absolutely destroyed, and he's given them eternal life, and he's taking a paintbrush and whitewashing their hearts. Isn't that powerful? That's where Tim Challies came from. Let me ask you something. What if she hadn't have met John Challies, 
that? What if she hadn't gotten on that bus? What if she'd taken another bus and gone the other direction? But she didn't. Why not? Because God was working in her and leading her and directing her steps, even when she didn't even know he was there. The mind of man plans his way. The Lord directs his steps. Because, you see, he wanted those two together, and he wanted uh, Tim Challies to have his ministry of writing and all that. See, God's in it all. And God's in your life the same way. Isn't this wild stuff? I love this stuff. Your life isn't random. Your life isn't governed by chance or the, ah, I drew the wrong cards. No, you didn't. God's running the whole thing, man. I got so much stuff here. I don't know what to do. I don't know about the questions. I, I don't know. We'll see. I got questions. My question is, where's my stuff? Uh, I, 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 I got Josh Hamilton here. I'm not going to get to him. In, in 2007, in the ESPN.com, Josh uh, Hamilton did an interview, and it's titled, I'm Proof That Hope Is Never Lost. It's a powerful article. Uh, it's just powerful. When he talks about um, how, how deep he was, he talks about living in rat-infested apartments with people he didn't even know. He talks about walking down, w waking up. You know, Lou talked about in that race car at wherever it was, Sebring or Le Mans or something, going 160 miles an hour and waking up. Uh, Josh Hamilton tells a story here, walking down a main street in Raleigh, North Carolina, in, right, he, he, he kind of came to his senses, and he's walking down the double yellow lines. Cars flying by both ways. And he kind of came to his senses. And he, and he kind of realized where he was. He wasn't too far from his grandma's house. And you know what he did? He went right over to her house. And he, and he said, I'm not ashamed to tell you, I literally crawled under the covers with her. I was so scared and so frightened. He talks about this dream he'd have of Satan trying to come and destroy his life. And then he talks about calling out to Jesus and then the dream, then Jesus would show up in the dream and that was the only thing that gave him relief. And how the Lord turned him around. Yeah, you guys know some of the story. But he tells this story when he got back in baseball with the Reds. When, when he would go out after the stadium, he, would just, he just couldn't believe that God had restored, he just couldn't believe his life. He just couldn't believe what God had done. So he would always, he said, there will always be addicts outside waiting for me. There are always parents who, whose kids are, they don't know where their kids are, their kids are heroin addicts or something. So I try to stop and talk to everybody. And, and he said, on one night, this little 10-year-old boy came up to me. And the people are around, and I'm trying to sign and talk to him. This boy comes up to me, he says, Josh, Josh. And he goes, yeah, yeah. He goes, hey, Josh, you need to know, you're my savior. And Hamilton handled it so well. He said, well, thanks. But do you know who my Savior is? And a little boy looked at him and thought for a minute and thought and thought. And he went, Jesus Christ. He said, that's my Savior. Isn't that great? See, Jesus is my kinsman redeemer. Well, I can't find what I'm looking for, but I found a great quote by J.I. Packer. 
and I didn't think I'd use this, but I'm going to use it since I can't find my other stuff. Packer says, the truth is that God in his wisdom to make and keep us humble and to teach us to walk by faith has hidden from us almost everything that we should like to know about the providential purposes which he is working out in the churches and in our own lives. See, we don't have, we, quite frankly, we know very little about what God is doing and what God has done. When we get to heaven, we're going to be amazed to look back over our lives and see all of the works of the providence of God, most of it that we have been blind to. Not only while we're alive, but before we're born. Okay, I've got to start discarding here. Um, give, give me a second here, guys. Let's have the ushers come forward. We'll receive the offering. <laughs> give me just a second. I, gotta, ah, I found it. Okay. Uh, the third, you guys that are here for the first time, I'm usually together. I, I'm, usually just, I'm usually just like Chuck. Actually, I'm not. Um, but anyway, uh, here's the third uh, fact about genealogies. God will work for you after you are gone. See, God doesn't quit working even after we have died, even after we leave this earth. There was a, a comparison done of two men who lived in colonial America. One man's name was Max Jukes. There was research done by Richard L. Dugdale in a work that was published called The Jukes, J-U-K-E-S, a study in crime, disease, and heredity. And he says there was a man named Max Jukes who lived in American colonial times. Jukes was reportedly an atheist who believed in no law. He allegedly advocated free sex. That didn't happen back then. Uh, he had no formal educated. Uh, he hated any kind of responsibility. Uh, Dugdale wrote that Jukes was a hunter and a fisherman, a hard drinker, jolly and companionable, averse to steady work, working hard by spurts and idling by turns, he had numerous progeny, most of them certainly illegitimate. In other words, he was a slacker and he was a sluggard. Uh, a few years later, a man named A.E. Winship studied the life of Jonathan Edwards. The World Book Encyclopedia said that Jonathan Edwards had the greatest mind in the history of America. Philosopher, pastor, uh, president of Princeton University before he died. Uh, the great awakening really occurred through his sermons and through the ministry of George Whitfield. Um, he, uh, the writer here says, certainly Jukes and Edwards had an impact on their immediate families. See, we're always thinking about where we are immediately. We're thinking about our kids, we're thinking about our grandkids. That's pretty much all we see. It's what's in front of us, right? It's, how, how do we handle more than that? We got our kids, we got our grandkids. And they thought about their kids and grandkids just as you do. But somebody did a study of what happened after they died. Dugdale was able to estimate that the Max Jukes family had cost the state of New York almost $1.4 million, million to house, institutionalize, and treat his family of deviants. Um, over 300 were convicts, 27 were murderers, 190 were prostitutes, and 509 were either alcoholics or drug addicts. That's the legacy of Max Jukes. 
By contrast, the 929 descendants of Jonathan Edwards included 13 college presidents, 86 college professors. That used to be good. <laughs> I just thought I'd throw that in. Um, 13 college presidents, 86 college professors, 430 ministers, 314 war veterans, 75 authors, 100 attorneys, 30 judges, 66 physicians, and 80 holders of public office, including three U.S. senators, seven congressmen, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, a vice president of the United States, a controller of the United States Treasury, and a partridge in a pear tree. That's quite a legacy. You see? One man had no interest in God, one man denied the existence of God, but ideas have consequences, and um, you see what happens after a man lives his life and he's gone. I don't know where I heard this in the last month, but somebody, I'd give them credit if I could remember who they were, somebody made the statement that every man's life has a message, and that message will be declared loud and clear at your funeral service, even if it cannot be uttered by your children. If it's a negative, they cannot utter it in public, but just know this, the message is still being preached loud and clear. That would be Max Jukes. Now let me say a word to those of you who are here tonight and your last name is Jukes. <laughs> You're not condemned to repeat this. You're not condemned. You see, by the greatness of Christ, see, when God gets hold of a man, you know, you know what can happen when he comes into a man's life? It's just what happened to Tim Challey's his father, who was a rebel and a hippie and against God and against the truth, Christ came into his life, and a few months later, he meets this gal, Barbara, who's going to kill herself, and see, everything changed. Everything changed. That's what happened with Ruth, and that's what happened with Boaz. And when you look at the rest of the genealogy in Ruth chapter 4, you see that God continued to work in their lives, and God continued to honor them, uh, even after they were gone. Because I didn't finish the genealogy. It says, to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz came Obed, that was his son with Ruth, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, Jesse had eight sons, the youngest of whom was a guy by the name of David. They had no idea how God was going to bless them as a result of meeting by chance in that barley field in Bethlehem. See, you never know what God's going to do. You just never know. And sometimes, and, 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 hey, they didn't know what was going to happen with David. He was giving, and you know that their family line became the greatest family line in the history of Israel because to their progeny David, God said, you will never lack for a descendant to be on the throne. And when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus is the son of David. You never know how God's going to work. And sometimes we're discouraged right where we are right now because it looks like God's not working and maybe nothing's happening in your family and your kids are away from the Lord and have no interest and have repudiated everything you've tried to teach them about the Lord and about the scriptures and about Christianity, and they have absolutely no interest, 
Don't get too despairing. Just keep praying and keep fasting for them. Because you never know what God's going to do. There is a type of bamboo, bamboo, that is the highest grade of bamboo in the world. It is grown in Malaysia. And the men who cultivate this certain kind of bamboo, here's what they do. They clear a field, and then they plant deep into the ground bamboo seedlings. They carefully water and fertilize it, watching it every day. And at the end of one year, there is absolutely no growth. The second year, once again, they carefully fertilize, cultivate, water. Every day, they're watching. They're watching it. They're being responsible every day, and at harvest time, at the end of the second year, there's no growth. The third year, a lot of guys have quit by now. The third year, they're cultivating, faithful, they're out there in the hot sun, bearing down on them, they're out there keeping the weeds off, they're watering, they're doing everything they can do. And at the end of the third year, there's no growth. None. No signs of life. Fourth year, same drill, cultivating, fertilizing, all the things they need to do, and at the end of four years, finally, there's no growth. Fifth year. Fifth year. Same scenario, cultivating, fertilizing, hot sun, watering, and at the end of the fifth year, the bamboo shows up, and it grows 90 feet in 30 days. 90 feet in 30 days. Other strains of bamboo in Malaysia grow 24 inches a day. This particular strain will grow 90 feet in 30 days. But it takes time. Uh, there's another principle that we would tie in. It's called compound interest. And what I would say to you is that, you know what God loves to do with his men? See, the thing about compound interest, it starts, it's slow. It's slow. It's slow. And we all want it right now. We all want a 20% return. We all want, you know, 18%. Those days are over, man. Once again, how else can I encourage you? But what's compound interest? You just put a little away, just put a little away, put a little away, and it goes real. You've seen those charts. It just, five years, 10 years, it's flat. 12 years, 15 years, it's flat. 18 years, 20 years, about 23 years, all of a sudden, sucker takes off like a space shuttle, right? Just like the bamboo. You never, what God, you never know how God's going to bless you in the future. You can look back and see your genealogy, but you don't know who's out there. You don't know who's coming, but God does, and he knows their names, and he's got a plan. So pray for your kids. Pray for your grandkids, even if they don't exist. About three or four times a week, I'm out walking. When I walk, I pray. And I've been praying for my grandkids for 30 years. And I couldn't get anybody married until two months ago. <laughs> but I'm looking forward to seeing those grandkids. You know? So just pray. God will bless you in the future. Okay, now, I actually have eight minutes and 44 seconds. So let's do some questions. And I'll tell you what, I've noticed over the years in conferences, I usually do this, these Q&A sessions work really well when somebody asks a question. And when they don't, it's kind of flat. If you've always felt like you're the next Billy Graham, this is not your opportunity. Just to let you know, sorry to throw water on you, but this isn't your time to preach. 
But you had a question, and we don't have a mic, so if you have one. Jim, did you have one? Yes, Chalies. Chalies is C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S. C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S. Chalies.com. Well, that's it. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. <laughs> we have one right here? Yes, sir. Can we surprise God? No. Can you surprise God? I don't think so, because God knows all things. That would be my response. I don't think God is ever surprised. I don't think God is ever shocked. I think, I, I think when we were all shocked and stunned by what we saw on television at 9-11, God was not shocked and God was not stunned. He knows it all in advance. He's planned it from the, the beginning from the end. You read the book of Isaiah. He, he set it in motion. He planned it. That's why it comes about as I read the Bible. That's my response. But again, it's, it's all in the Word of God. You've got to look it up in the Scriptures. Somebody else? Uh, right here. Yes, sir. Yeah. Do I have a suggested must-read list? Yeah. I, I have some. Yeah, I, I would say, uh, oh, good, Lou. Yeah, well, let's head over that direction. This uh, won't go into recording. Okay. Um, uh, I, would say, um, I would say Knowing God by Packer, J.I. Packer. Uh, it's on the character of God, the attributes of God. Um, I would say uh, All Things for Good by Thomas Watson, old Puritan guy. Um, I would say uh, The Mystery of Providence by John Flavel, F-A-L-V-E-L. Um, I would say Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Anything Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, I read. That's just off the top of my head. There are some other great ones. That's just coming to my mind right now. Well, I usually don't. Because I heard the guy that wrote Point Man is a pinhead. But anyway, you're, you get me in trouble there, but thank you. Uh, I saw another hand over here. Uh, yeah, right there, Lou, the guy, gentleman right behind you. Blue shirt, big guy. Hey, Steve, uh, two weeks ago, They won't, they won't, here it is, I got it. They won't start anything. They won't finish anything. They won't face anything. Does that fit? No, I have the second one was they've been trained by other men to assume responsibility. Maybe we can talk afterwards. Maybe you can show it to me afterwards. I'm not getting it right now. I'm sorry. Yeah. Somebody else? Do we have another one? Right here. Yes, sir. Right in the black jacket, and then Roger in front of you. On Sunday, uh, Chuck's uh, prayer, he mentioned endowments. He, he mentioned entitlements? entitlements? Yes, if you were to uh, mention entitlements in your prayer, what would you mean? <laughs> if I mentioned entitlements in my prayer? Uh, I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't here. I was over at the Mormon church. I was somewhere. I don't know where I was, but I wasn't here. I didn't hear that. 
I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, I, I, to me, biblically, uh, there are no entitlements. It's all grace. It's all mercy. That's what it is. It's, all, it's his loving kindness. That's, that's what it is, isn't it? So I think that's probably, did I get it? Close? I think that's what he meant. It's just all grace. We don't deserve anything. It's God's unmerited favor. Roger, you had a, right, right here in front of you, Jason, right there. Yeah, Steve, the, uh, the gentleman that uh, had the pleasure of working with Craig Robert and made reference to, uh, we were talking about praying for something. And uh, he made a comment, and I've never heard this before. Uh, and I thought you might better the comment. He said, uh, my dad is very much a praying man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I think I think when you pray for future generations, God answers. I think a lot of times we pray for things, and God burdens us. I, I remember my mother telling me about my great grandmother. Uh, I remember her in her late nineties. She died when I was about five. But. I, I've told the story in here. She had 13 kids, eight sons, five daughters. Two boys died in the flu epidemic of 1918. But she was in her 90s, and her sons were in their 60s and 70s, and none of them were believers. I mean, they were hellraisers even then. And she died not seeing any of them come. But I remember my mom telling me that grandma, as she, her grandmother, would be at dinner and would become so burdened for her son, she would have to excuse herself and go into the bedroom and pray. Every one of those men came to Christ. But she didn't see it in her lifetime. Yeah. One of the old Puritan pastors said, God has answered every prayer I've ever prayed. He either gave me what I prayed for, or he gave me what I should have prayed for. <laughs> There's wisdom there. Somebody else. We're, we're, we're just kind of over here, guys, somehow. I don't know how that happened, but we got a gentleman right here, Jason. We got two of them. I don't know. I don't know. That's too deep for me. I, I don't know. All I know is this. Uh, I, I'm not disputing what he's saying. I just, I don't know, and I don't think we need to know. I, I think what we need to know is Jesus said in Matthew 6, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. And prior to that, Jesus said, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So to put it together, Jesus said, your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then in the next breath, he says, when you pray, pray like this. Now, how do I get that? I don't know, and I don't need to get it. I, I think, though, I would say this. I think prayer is not for God. Prayer is for us. Prayer is what takes us to him. Prayer is what takes us into his presence. Prayer is what gets us off of us and onto him. You see? That's, that's my perspective. Personally, that's my perspective on it.
Yeah, we had the white shirt and then right here, the gentleman in the white shirt. When I was six years old, my sister, three years old, died on the birth certificate. My dad started feeding my mother and did for most of my life. Years back, he died of cancer. He begged me to forgive him. I couldn't bring myself to doing that. It's just too late for me to forgive him. Hmm. You know, the Lord said, forgive him. Yeah. 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 Well, that's an honest question. You know, the psalmist said, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And here's what I'd say to you. I think the reason, I think the reason it was so hard for you to forgive your dad is that you were so crushed. But in your heart of hearts, you want to forgive him. And the Lord knows your heart, and he responds to the heart. So I'd say, if that's your prayer, it's been heard, and it's under the mercy, and it's under the blood. Don't you think? You know that to be true, don't you? See, Jesus is a great Savior, isn't he? Thanks for being so honest. Gosh, thank you. A lot of guys could be right there with you on that. I, I had a guy today tell me he, he's, he thought he had forgiven... The, his wife divorced, horrible, horrible divorce, and he, he said, I was in a class, he was teaching a class on divorce recovery last night, and as he was teaching to help these other guys, he started thinking about everything his wife had done, and, and he had to forgive her all over again. He'd been trying for the last 24 hours to forgive her, and he, he, he thought he had already forgiven her. God knows our hearts. He knows we're just dust. We're not much, but Jesus is great. Isn't he? Yeah. Thank you. One more, right here, Rich. Because I'm out of time. I got double zeros back there. Daughters. Three daughters. You have three daughters. I, I hear you talk about fathers and their sons. Yeah. But with, with, what would you say is the most important advice you give to a, a father with daughters and what they need to do with them? I'd go find godly men to marry them. <laughs> I'd, I'd get into the arranged marriage business uh, <laughs> is what I would do. Here's, here's what I'd say to you. There, I don't see any verses in the Bible that speak to men on how to raise their daughters. I, I don't see it. I see verses that tell men how to treat their sons. But here's, in my thinking, here's what I see. I think when it comes to daughters, I think, here's how I have always viewed it. Um, when Rachel was a little girl, I just figured she would one day grow up and be a woman and she would be a wife. So it seems to me the verses that tell me how to treat my wife those verses should be applied to how I treat my daughter. You see. Yeah, that's how I've tried to do it. And, and what happens when a little girl, uh, boys and girls get their sexual identity from their fathers. He's the central individual in, in, for both of them forming sexual identity. The boys emulate their fathers. Little girls play off of their fathers. And what should happen, I think, as your daughter's uh, see how you treat their mother and then how you treat them. By your example, what happens is when they get into the adolescent years and boys come into their lives, there should be uh, an invisible template. And these young men who come in, see the template is your life as a Christian man. And these boys come in and if they're harsh and critical, they should bounce off of the template of your life. 
because it says live with your wives in an understanding way and live with your daughters in an understanding way. So if you hurt them, you're quick to repair it. You see, they know that's what a Christian man does. So if a young man comes in and he's not that way, he'll bounce off of your example. If he tries to, you know, uh, overreach uh, physically, take inappropriate steps, he bounces off of the model of your example. And you put out a contract on him. In, in the name of Jesus, of course, in Christian world. Yeah. There's a great book, there's a great book uh, called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters by a gal named Meg Meeker. It's the best thing I've ever read. Jeff, would you agree with that? Where's Jeff back there? Jeff's got 14 daughters or something like that. That's a great book. Yeah, and she starts off by talking about how she'd get so angry with her dad when guys would come in and want to date her, and he, she could tell he didn't approve of them. And then later, it would just irritate her because he was always right. But they always looked so good when they came in. He looked right through them, you know? He was a strong man that created a strong woman. What was that? Strong, strong uh, fathers, strong daughters. Meeker, M-E-E-K-E-R. She's Roman Catholic, uh, but she's not teaching theology. She's just talking common sense parenting. It's very good. What does that sign say, Lou? Ten what? Oh, I have ten minutes? Oh, okay. Yes, sir, right back here. Well, thank you, sir. Yeah. Uh, I, along with you, am curious. I have no clue. I, I, I honestly, I haven't even thought about it. I just haven't. I'm just being honest with you. But uh, thank you. I, I thank you. I appreciate that. You guys, hey, you know what? Let me tell you, for me, I love doing this study. You guys, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I'm amazed you guys come. I, I, I'm not trying to be humble. I'm just amazed you come. I wouldn't walk across the street to hear me. I'm serious. I, I walked in the other day, and we're trying to come up with a little video for people that call. We can send them a little promo thing with clips. And I, won't wa I can't watch it. So Mary was in there watching this thing. And I walked in, and I'm on there, and, and I literally cringe. And, and she watched three of them all day. I had to leave the house. I mean, I did. So I'm amazed you come, and I thank you for coming. You guys have teachable hearts, and I, I thank you for that. It really means a lot to me. It, it truly does. I'm very blessed. So thank you, sir. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yes, sir. Do we have any idea who the other kinsman redeemer was that Boaz referred to? Was it an older brother? Yeah. Was it an uncle? Don't know. Don't know. Yeah, I'm sure guys have written dissertations on it, but they don't know. It's just speculation, because it doesn't tell us. And I've learned when it doesn't tell you, don't guess. Just, it's, we don't know. So the answer is no. Yes, sir, right here. After the consult, okay, let me, let me keep up. Here's a microphone, Let's, one more, so everybody can hear you. When he was king. When Solomon was king. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, even though he sinned, God said, I'm not taking it out of your hand because of the promise to your father David. Right. After he died, was written the book. Right. Came on the top to his father. Right. 
That's right. What are the, and what, what's that? What, what, is that Palestine? Is that, I thought about that the other Yeah, well, the ten, uh, Solomon's son was no, named... No, that's right. Solomon's son was named Rehoboam. Okay? So Solomon was the wisest man. Rehoboam was one of the greatest fools in the history of Israel. Because the ten tribes came and said, hey, basically, just cut us a little slack, you know. And he wouldn't do it. Instead of listening to the older men, he listened to the younger men. And he basically said, hey, I'm a tough guy. And, you know, so, uh, so the ten tribes, there was a guy by the name of Jeroboam. So you got Rehoboam, Jeroboam. So Jeroboam took the ten tribes and they went up north. Geographically, it's just the northern part of the kingdom. So the southern kingdom was uh, Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And they were in the capital of Jerusalem. But under Jeroboam, if you get out your Bible and look, they went as far north, uh, they went into the north, you know, the tribes, those northern tribes had those northern lands. And Jeroboam didn't want the people, you know, they were supposed to go three times a year. He didn't want the men to go. So he set up uh, temples and set up golden calves. He said, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. And he said, I think it was Dan and Bethel. And so he instituted idolatry. And the northern kingdoms, they never had any kings that followed God. And then... Assyria came and took them into captivity. And then it was later that, uh, probably what, 150, 160 years later, that the southern kingdom was taken into captivity. That was D uh, Daniel and the boys in the first round with Nebuchadnezzar going to Babylon. Yeah. Biblical prophecy for $40. I feel like I'm doing Jeopardy here. Yes, sir, right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not a good, I'm not a good path. I'm not straight from my path. Yeah. How would you say that I stay from my path? Well, that is a, that's an excellent question. That's a great question. You know, the scripture says, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. So you're 30, did you say you're 30? Yeah. Well, I'm 38. You know, and there are guys in here, whether you're 30 or you're 40 or you're 20 or you're 70 or 80, we all ought to be asking that question. I think what we do is we create holy habits. I think we live kind of, uh, we're real predictable men. We check in with the Lord. I, I, I learned this from my dad. You start your day with the Word of God. You get a morning briefing with the Commander-in-Chief. You get in the Word of God, and you get the Word of God in you. You want truth. You want to, you want to know what He says. You want, to be, you want to start with truth because you're going to be lied to for the rest of the day. And, and then I think the other thing you do is he who walks with wise men will be wise. doesn't mean you don't have non-Christian friends, but they're not the influencers in your life. How blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm 1. You know? Uh, bad company corrupts good morals. So you watch your friends carefully. You walk with wise men. You stay in the Word of God. You, you, don't, um, you, you don't let sin linger. You deal with it. You don't touch sin with a 10-foot pole. And when you do, you handle it. You handle it. You don't let it foul and fester and get gangrene coming up your heart. So you keep quick, short accounts with God. And you just walk with Him. Enoch walked with God. So you just, today, you just walk with him. 
You say, Lord, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing, but I know you're with me. and I'm just moving ahead. Don't let me screw up here. And Lord, you navigate me. You just navigate me today. You know? That's, I, mean, that's, I don't know what else to do. You just walk by faith, but you just walk with him. Yeah. Yeah. Great. How to ruin your life by 40. Okay, good. Well, good. Great. I, I wrote that book. These guys are trying to... Nobody read it, but I wrote it. Thank you. I'm glad you read it. All right, guys, I think we got one more. I spot, uh, uh, let him who stands take heed lest he fall. Was that it? Uh, bad company corrupts good morals. Uh, he who walks with wise men will be wise. Yeah, and I don't, I, I, I don't remember references. It's in Pro- that one's in Proverbs somewhere. Okay, good. Someone have one more? Roger? Comment. I've gotten better and better through the years. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Well, gosh, guys, my self-esteem is just blowing out the roof here tonight. I thank you for that. Hey, guys, I love you. I appreciate you. Thanks for coming. And uh, Lord willing, hey, wouldn't it be great if we don't meet again because the Lord came back? I'm all for that, man. I am all for that. But if he doesn't, we'll see you in January sometime. God bless you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you.